think back to 1986. Casual misogyny, smoking in airplanes, and abusive social relationships were all the rage. This movie is called The Manhattan Project, but there is no sex in this city, and the city being Ithaca, New York, on the third rock from the sun. I know these are bad puns. Arrest me. Read me my Miranda rights. Anyway, this movie is like my science project in that it has project in the name, but maybe shares a little more DNA with Real Genius. I should rewatch Real Genius at some point, and I 100% need to watch Top Secret at some point. This is another one of those matinee movies, and I'm going through a phase right now, you could say. And it stuck with me for a very long time in a very real way. The Manhattan Project made me as a kid think about what it means to be smart in, in a deeper way and what it means to be brave. But anyway, let's let's roll the thing on the high school kid getting cock-blocked and building an atomic bomb. That's a brilliant achievement. You'd get the Nobel if he could publish. Publish? I said if. All right, set him up. Someplace quiet, away from prying eyes. Paul, come say hi. Dr. Matheson, this is my son, Paul. He's hot for my mother. He figures I'm a dumb kid. He's so. hot for your mother, really? Uh-huh. He's got all these security clearances. I don't know what they are. Los Alamos, Oak Ridge. What is that? What does it look like? A five-leaf clover. Where'd you find it? Growing outside that lab. You know the odds on that kind of mutation happening naturally without chemicals or radiation or something? It's like a billion to one. It never happens. Maybe you're just very lucky. Who knows about this? Just us. We should do something. We can get in there. What can they do to us anyway? We're kids. It's a prank, right? A and B car to just both went at once. What's happening? It's Paul. I hate to go in there, Charlie. They got stuff in there that zaps you right out. Any idea who he's working with? I don't think he's working with anybody. I think he did it by himself. Who are these people? Does he feel that people don't like him? That he's special or different? Is he unhappy with the present political system? They can't do anything to me. Why not? I'm underage. What do you think this is, a school play? You could start a war, for God's sake. Now stop screwing around before it's too late. The package has arrived, and it's hot. You don't know what you took, Paul. I do not want them off the premises with that gadget, do you copy? Give me a clear shot behind the ear, and I'll turn them off like a switch. By the numbers, the Manhattan Project, a.k.a. Deadly Game, was released June 13th, 1986, to the tune of 1.5 million that weekend. It's not great. Budget was 18 million estimate, which is a lot, and USA Gross is listed at 3.9 million, which is not, not a lot. Not great. It's got a runtime. Well, it's got two runtimes, apparently, of 107 minutes theatrical and uh, ooh, 107 minutes 
on video is what I have, but I think it's 117 minutes theatrical and 107 minutes on video. Uh, however, I, I just wrote it wrong. Fuck it. Let's roll. There are no special features to speak of, and my runtime that I can see on mine is longer than both of those estimates. But uh, it's fast and loose. And how the hell is this movie 18 million? Honestly, like I don't, I don't really keep track of budgets from this time period. But what, what the actual fuck? I know that they had some really cool industrial sets, but I just, I don't know. the The movie looks good, but god damn, seventeen or eighteen million. That's worse. The movie did release against Rodney Dangerfield's Back to School and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which like just absolutely fucking dominated the box office, right? There's also zero star power in this movie. Uh, it, it's an Oscar-winning co-writer of Annie Hall and other Woody Allen pictures coming up as a as a writer-director on a movie about an atomic bomb, which, you know, in a way is, is a very real fear that you have in 1986. And ostensibly, it, it stars the preacher from Footloose. Annie Hall wasn't a big deal when it came out, right, by the way. Like, just because you want an Oscar for Annie Hall, that doesn't mean shit. That movie was slept on big time. This is just for context, but we, we talk about it now all the time, but nobody cared. It was Scott Pilgrim versus the world, but in the late 70s. All right, so for those who are unfamiliar, you know, which I expect to be 100% of listener, I'll drop a brief summary of it here. I think that it's extremely unlikely that you would come across this movie by chance and, you know, kind of unlikely that you would come across it on purpose. So I don't think I'll be spoiling anything terribly, but, you know, there'll be a little bit of mystery. Paul Stevens, uh, an extremely gifted high school student with a bit of a mean streak, learns that the the man that, mm, no, okay, let's, let's rewind that tape a little bit. Dr. John Mathewson played by John Lithgow is uh, in a, we start out kind of in a cool looking lab and he's blasting shit with lasers and making the most pure uncut plutonium in the world. And uh, you know, Hey, for those who don't know, plutonium is a synthetic element meant to replace uranium, which is acquired in the Ural mountains, which were, you know, behind the former iron curtain during that whole cold war thing. So that's going to replace uranium to be the fissile material in an atomic bomb. Cool. So we're caught up. So Dr. Strangelove, right, is looking for an apartment in Ithaca, New York. And he runs up on Elizabeth Stevens, who is an attractive realtor with a sharp wit and sharper tongue. He's super into her, as one does. And after some faux pas, we find out that she's separated and she has a high school age son and all these things. Meanwhile, but at this time, we've already met Paul Stevens, her son, who has that same kind of like razor sharp, like really on the ball wit and, and intellect even. But with a teenager's very particular brand of, of being a fucking asshole, right? And this is basically the conceit of the movie. How much of an asshole can an, an ostensibly 18-year-old be? And the answer is about 40 megatons. And also, I think he's he's actually listed at 17, I, I believe, but it, it doesn't really matter at this point, except for maybe one detail, but uh, it's about the drinking age and nobody cares. 
anyway, the drinking age was not 18. So it was just a, a really weird, it was a really weird event. I don't know if they were trying to market this in Europe, but it was very odd. Anyway, he's jealous of Matthewson dating his mom. And there are, you know, there are some good dialogue scenes in there. And I don't want you to stop listening here and take away that this movie is bad because I don't think that it is. But I mean, it isn't great and it didn't land well in the annals of history, right? But but the long and the short of it is that, you know, he figures out that this dude is refining plutonium on the low after a trip to the lab to see the badass laser. And by the way, team, I cannot express to you how badass lasers were in the 80s. So in the span of like a fucking day, Paul designs a heist to like rob a government facility basically flawlessly with his love interests, right? If not quite girlfriend, Jenny, you know, like she's his accomplice. And I, I say that because I'm just, I'm a bit fuzzy on exactly what their status is. Cool beans. But then, you know, Paul doesn't know when to stop. And uh, he continues to be heisty and actually goes and he builds an atomic bomb. He misunderstands how potent his particular sample of plutonium is and is actually putting all of New York City at risk as he takes his explosive device to show off as his science project in Manhattan. Ugh, God, that's a dad joke right there. Yeah, it's it's quite literally the Manhattan Project as he's attending a huge science fair in Manhattan, and this is his science project, right? It, it would it would it would be odd and ill advised to do that with a an explosive device because it's not like you could fucking demonstrate it. You, you can't. Don't please don't. He's very smart, but he's very much still a teenage asshole. And to be clear, I was also a teenage asshole, so I'm probably projecting a lot of what I feel about myself onto the character of Paul Stevens. However, as much of an asshole as I was, I didn't put millions of lives at risk to prove that I was smart. I mean, unless this podcast is, is one, reaching millions of people, and two, killing them. Oh, God. Oh, no, no. Are you there? Are you there? Snake? Snake! The bomb goes missing. Hijinks ensue. That's the movie, so to speak. So now that we're clear on that, we can move into the movie. And uh, as we do so, please keep all hands and feet inside the vehicle at all times. Do not at any point stand up or lean outside of the vehicle. If you are pregnant, suspect that you may be pregnant or have a heart condition, please raise your hand and we will be able to let you exit the vehicle in the next minute. Christopher Collette plays the protagonist of the semi-horny teen genius power, power fantasy, right? Paul Stevens. And I genuinely feel that he does a good job on it, even if he kisses with his eyes open. And maybe that's a weird uh, choice, a weird tell that he's socially kind of playing from his own book. And I realize now that this invites some comparison. And it's not that he doesn't, it's not that he doesn't understand or pick up on social cues, but more that he, um, man, when when some friction arises, he chooses to ignore them in a, in a fixated pursuit for whatever his current obsession is, which is atomic bombs right you know just as as one does he's otherwise a, a happy and healthy high schooler who plays goalie on the soccer team has a romantic relationship with jenny of, of some depth or level that seems to you know upon reflection 
lie well within the boyfriend-girlfriend territory after the bomb-building montage. And he loves his mom. He's just always trying to make time with his girl and is getting routinely interrupted. And that, that is all great. That is this American life. That is Norman Rockwell. But his dad is in Saudi Arabia. Not as a prisoner. He just He's working there on purpose. And this kid has a huge, huge chip on his shoulder all the while being viciously smart. He's Sherlockian, right? And that he knows um, an obnoxious amount of information on what appear to be random topics. But when, when posed with the reference, doesn't know what to make of Woodward and Bernstein in the context of having two sources for reporting a massive, massive news story. This doesn't fully mesh with what I think the character has been meant to be portrayed as, but, you know, maybe it does. He's, he's super smart, but he's still just an asshole kid to a certain extent, and he hasn't lived a life. He hasn't considered how other people might read his actions, as drastic as they are. And uh, it's just, it's a really weird vibe when this basically ideal kid buys C4 off an AWOL military serviceman with a Brooklyn accent. Like you could just some somebody will just sell you C four. It's all good. Yeah, that's it's just it's very strange. Jenny, the love interest in this movie, is actually a very fun character who is legally and essentially complicit in this whole bomb making affair. Her goals, which Paul derails, are to use the power of journalism to expose the covert plutonium refinery in their wonderfully perfect Ithaca, New York. She's played by Cynthia Nixon of Sex in the City fame. And I, I mean, to be fair, she's done a ton of things. And I mean, Alpha House was, was a pretty fun show that didn't get picked up for, I think, uh, a third season. I'm, I'm not looking it up. But she definitely has the, the girl next door quality. But she's a good enough actress. She's a good actress to act like she's a good actress in character in the movie. Right. And that was very pleasant to watch. Having gone through a few less talented casts in the past couple of episodes, I would say that this cast definitely has some chutzpah, and Cynthia Nixon is a huge, huge part of that. She'd been working pretty often since 1979 and made her way to play Lori in Amadeus, which I haven't seen yet, and I kick myself for it. But hey, by all accounts, that movie's a fucking banger, so I only have uh, to look forward to it, right? But she just continued to work, apparently, like, based on her skill and just making appearances on, like, Murder, She Wrote, The Pelican Brief, Adam's Family Values, where, where she plays a character named Hitha. It's notable that when the science fair turns science ugly, the plot pivots back over to getting Jenny her story in the newspaper, and she is at least critical. You know, if off camera, she is very critical in getting the resolution of the film handled in a satisfactory way. In 2021, there could have been a bit more nuance as to how that might have come about, but I'd say that all in all, Jenny actually does show up in this story, although, you know, her involvement is, is very Paul-centric, even to Paul-directed, but he's also, he's, he's a teenage asshole, so. That brings us to the other big gun in the movie, one uh, actor, producer, writer, and author a Mr. John Lithgow. Lithgow is a force to be reckoned with. He does it all, you know, a bit. He does it all, and, and I enjoy it. 
I'm not I'm not even gonna go into his credits. You should you should know. And if you don't, hey, look it up. Lithgow definitely kind of occupies a similar space as Kelsey Grammer, but I guess perhaps with more discretion and maybe with more range to it. Lithgow may not be quite as as brute force intimidating, but he's at least equally a cerebral and with his with his nice guy attitude, he can actually be even scarier. In this movie, he's a he's a pretty chill scientist who uh, who makes literal weapons of mass destruction. Hey, but again, he's super chill. He's a really chill guy. The movie does a good job of of insulating and ultimately kind of washing this off of Lith- Lithgow's Doctor Matthewson. And hey, to be fair, I'm in that guy's corner too. He's really really chill. He's just a, he's a horny nerd, a lot like Paul Stevens, but with with more experience and in bed with the Grim Reaper, as well as Paul's mom. The parallel would probably have been better reinforced in a more modern movie, but ultimately, I think that these decisions were very intentional as they they really enable the ending to work out where this um this committed government scientist sticks up for for this kid, and um. Uh, torpedoes everything probably in his life and is going to end up teaching physics somewhere or something. But Hey, who knows? Maybe he stays as a, as a love interest for his mom, but he saves Paul's life. Essentially. He is, he is very charming though. I cannot overemphasize how charming the character of, of Dr. Matthewson is. And Matthewson and Paul really genuinely do connect. They're very similar people in vastly different points in their lives. And there's this whole kind of thing with Elizabeth between them that uh, that that is the the fulcrum that sets this machine in motion. The fulcrum, the hub, I guess, around which the you know the the characters orbit, so to speak, or at least to to start out the action, to start the machine of the movie up. Jill Eikenberry plays Elizabeth Stevens, and uh, she definitely had a good career and had a massive run on L.A. Law which uh, I don't know if y'all remember that, but it's definitely a show. She's Paul's like witty and cool mom and really the object of, of contention here. And Jenny even points out to Paul that she thinks that Paul has some Oedipal jealousy going on. And I get that this might seem like a brag, but I, I, I can't really understand what Paul's going through with his parents separating like that. Not only when I was his age, was I dumb as fuck in comparison? But I just, I didn't have, I, I don't have that experience to draw from. Elizabeth does bring up some, some salient points on, you know, around which the philosophy of the movie maybe revolves somewhat, but the commitment isn't a whole lot to it. She, uh, there's a whole discussion between her and Matthewson and, Elizabeth poses that there might be a higher quote law that and 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 Matthewson asks her what the hell that means and I quote what are you saying that he did it for ethics for reasons of conscience who do you think he is Galileo he's a kid and there's a lot to unpack there but I just want to run through the other people who I who I recognize real quick John Mahoney is a, a big-time army-type colonel dude, and you'll know John Mahoney is Martin Crane from Frasier, naturally. Richard Jenkins has a really early role as a bureaucratic type, and uh, as we have come to find, that suits him extremely well. Like, he fucking kills. He can do bureaucrat for days and not break a sweat. Like, 
there's also that uh, Francis Ford Coppola looking ass scientist. I don't know his name. I don't, I don't know who the actor is. I don't know what his function is. But dude just looks like Francis Ford Coppola. Might be Francis Ford Coppola. I don't know. But finally, Dan Butler, also of the Fraserverse, makes an appearance as a SWAT member. You'll know him as Bulldog on Fraser, but he's also done a ton of stuff. If I had to pigeonhole this movie, it would be difficult to say where it lies. It's a part-time teen adventure, part-time heist movie, part-time paranoia thriller, and part-time feel-good picture. There's some exploration of themes and concepts, right? The aforementioned discussion with Elizabeth and Dr. Mathewson, I think, is a good place to start. Mathewson is uh, that's kind of valid here. So stealing, stealing fissile material isn't a just-because move to make. And Elizabeth has full faith in her child, and I get that. But I don't know that her argument is fully valid here, just saying. The movie doesn't either because, like, instantly the subject has changed. Paul calls, and the whole scene shifts over to him. So we don't get to explore that thread through character any further. It stops right then and there. And uh, her thought process, as, as far as it is communicated, is he's got a gift and he wants to use it. And, you know, this is an argument I've also heard about in cases of computer intrusion, right? Computer system intrusion. And, you know, there is some validity here in that destruction may not be the intent and that curiosity shouldn't necessarily be criminalized, you know, and, and for sure do I have some fucking feelings on how how legislation affects security researchers in a negative way right now. You know, but in the case of this movie, there is an additional step and really brinksmanship that brings the movie to its climax. And I, I chose my words wisely there. Brinksmanship, hand in hand with mutually assured destruction and deterrence, play a big thematic role in the last action sequence. Paul, threatened with guns, has hid himself and he's assembled his bomb, which was you know, previously harmless, but under threat, under duress, he feels that that is his only remaining move. He discusses the situation with Dr. Mathewson, who, who through his intervention had already prevented Paul from getting shot once by the feds. And, um, you know, again, we see they have that rapport, that connection, that understanding. But Paul is ultimately, and, you know, criminal or not, like, regardless of that, he is a scared kid who rigged together an atomic bomb out of random shit like salad bowls and photography flashes. You'd think, you would think that this would be subtext in this movie, but this is like legit ass text in the movie at this point. They, Paul says it because, you know, Paul is a smart kid who also is a smart ass and he's reflecting upon his own situation, you know, and he acknowledges that he doesn't want to, nor would he turn the key and arm the bomb. However, he was backed into that corner through the excessive use of guns and violence from the federal agents, and now he believes that he will be killed at the earliest opportunity. Mathewson kind of reads the room, and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, they might, they might actually just do that. Again, there's a lot of synergy there in this not-quite-father-son relationship, but it's got something. It's got, it's got some juice to it. The father-son dynamic is kicking in, and the, the tall nerd who fucks is... He's actually owning up and he's making himself responsible for the kid. I don't know if it's if it's just that father instinct kicking in or if it's 
how much of himself he sees in Paul, or if it's just conscience and thinking about what he's doing is wrong. But Matthewson takes the bomb and, and walks out with it and starts making demands, knowing full well that they will treat him differently than Paul, because he's not a criminal. He's ostensibly a respectable adult. Matthewson leverages his position and his station to ensure Paul's safe egress from the laboratory. And Matthewson there, holding the bomb, has a little monologue calling out the scenario as a game of chance, letting the feds know that they could easily blow everything up and ending it up with the challenge, who wants to play? Can't help but think of this as a tip of the hat to War Games, which explores these uh, these very similar themes, but in the scope of, of automation and, and computerization and, and the grand stage of NORAD versus that of a mostly innocent, very scared, and uh, backed-into-a-corner kid. Matthewson told Elizabeth earlier uh, to not make him into an activist, him being Paul, yet Matthewson himself becomes the activist on behalf of Paul in an interesting way. And there is there is some sense of activism in Paul's mission, yes, but it's it's really intertwined with his ego, he wants to show up Matthewson. He wants to prove superiority, and he is righteously convinced that a laboratory of that type should be, you know, made public, I guess. I, I, I don't know. It's not, you know, it's not hitting me the same way, I guess. But, um, you know, not too long before the movie came out, there was the Three Mile Island incident. And I believe that this could have supported some of this nuclear paranoia. But uh, again, to put like some modern spin on that, in 2021, in this year, I've read reports that the nuclear power plant nearest to me is leaking radiation into the groundwater, and um, I don't know that a goddamn thing has been done about it. So the the optimistic outlook that the the film ends up with, kind of, it it doesn't does not line up with my experience. And this is a good time to talk about Marshall Brickman. Brickman is a writer and director who wrote, you know, or co-wrote, right, the movie and directed it. He did have a co-writer on this movie, whose name I, I don't remember and I'm not going to locate. I'm sorry, co-writer. Actually, I'm going to do it. I'm going to locate it. I feel bad now. I feel like such a jerk every time. Thomas Baum. Thomas Baum is a writer. Thomas Baum, not a lot of uh, credits. Not a lot. Not a lot, but it's all chill, you know. It's chill stuff. Brickman, however, is a, a bit a bit of an interesting character. He previously wrote for Candid Camera, The, the Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson, The Dick Cavett Show, uh, you know, as well as writing on the Woody Allen productions of Sleeper, Sleeper, I can't say that word, Sleeper, Annie Hall, Manhattan, and would later also participate in Manhattan Murder Mystery, also with Woody Allen, in addition to going into the Adams Family musical and Jersey Boys, which is also a musical. Uh, but, but apparently dude's trying to corner the market on movies with Manhattan in the title. And uh, yeah, there's there's not a lot of, of Manhattan and uh, in this movie, but he, he also directed the movie. And a lot of material on him is very focused on working with Woody Allen and not on this movie, which has, you know, to a certain extent, been financially like banished to obscurity. Brickman in skimming a 
a YouTube interview with him, like in the show notes. He comes off to me, at least, as a naturally funny person. He's not going for big laughs. He is, he is amusing with ease. Zero effort on his part puts a, puts a big grin on my face, right? And he's an Oscar winner, and in the video, when he, when he shifts a certain way in his seat, he, he reveals its presence on the shelf. But you can forget that fact because he is, he is so personable. He's, it's great. And he's very much a New Yorker. Apparently he grew up in Flatbush, but got a science degree alongside a music degree at the University of Wisconsin. You'd think that for a writer that all that, that sciencey shit wouldn't play, but it does. He's the guy that still likes all of that. He took inspiration for, for, for the plot of this movie from a real life event where, or I guess a, a real life anecdote, maybe. I don't know that it was a real event, but a student of Freeman Dyson of physics fame, and you can look him up and learn some shit, had his students attempt to design an atomic bomb from freely available resources, and one of them finally did. And this movie actually comes from a pretty personal place from what I can tell, based on, on what I've read and heard, and I get that. I see it. And, and, you know, we now in 2021, we don't fully understand this. Most people listening to this don't even remember the Berlin Wall, but I'm just, I'm at the cusp of that. I remember my parents letting me stay up to watch the wall come down on the news kind of thing. And that was, that was a huge deal in 1989. And, uh, you know, after that, the Soviet Union was kind of not a thing. There had definitely been, you know, progress and, and detente and, and things along the way, but to, to know and to understand that the biggest threat to life on the planet was, was the Cold War and for Americans, you know, specifically between the USSR and the US, to have that conflict be over was huge. The world was different after that. This movie was made before that. And when you're watching Stranger Things and laughing at the Russian Terminator, you're, you're actually kind of missing the point. The Russian Terminator is a gag, yes. And the Duffer brothers are around my age. But if you were older, you probably grew up doing drills where you would... Uh, in school, get under your desk to hide from an atomic bomb launched by the USSR. That was basically the narrative. And that's just as a kid, as an adult, it was, it was probably omnipresent and crushing. The constant threat of, of extinction-level nuclear war. The conflict writ small in this film is really personal. And, and I think that it, it revolves around Brickman himself. Brickman had two kids at this point. If you can imagine the threat of being annihilated, stifling, try imagining it with kids. You know, I recall the last, I guess, political snafu that we had with a certain country who is developing nuclear capabilities, and it was unclear what they could do and what they were willing to do. For those few days, it was me thinking every time I saw my family, hey, this might be the last time that I see them. And that's what it's like. So imagine doing that for 40 years. Brickman was an activist, is an activist, he is an activist, but more more specifically, uh, he was a musician, or is a musician, I guess, technically, who, who was active in protest events and things like that. He came from a family of folk musicians that had a really interesting life and career to a certain, you know, to a certain extent in music, you know, and that could, one could posit that led him directly to developing the musicals that he has later in his career. He came to this project with all of that passion. 
It was also a, a bit of a family affair, you know, as he collaborated with his wife, Nina Feinberg, on this film. She's the editor of the film. And, and hey, you, just, you know, they say the film is made three times, the last one of those being the edit. And in fact, it seems that they made space in their home and they edited the movie in their living room. And the movie feels good. It feels good. It feels edited well. It feels like a like a blockbuster would in how cohesive it is. Not, not that there are a bunch of highway scenes or explosions or car crashes or anything like that. Everything flows well and, and, and feels pretty right. And if you think explosions make make a good movie, I, I you you are mistaken, and I can prove you wrong. I can take, I can spend millions of your dollars and do a lot of explosions and still make a very 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 bad movie. You know that movie that doesn't feel right because I'm just not good at making movies. The people who are good at making movies are the people who get the most out of their explosions and gunfights equally, right? Equally as as well as their character moments, as their candlelit pillow talk. I think that this tier, this level of commitment in, in a personal and artistic way is really what made me keep thinking about this movie years later after seeing it on TV, you know, when my cartoons finished kind of thing. Bran Farron, uh, the set designer, also played a big role in, in keeping my mind on this movie. The science sets were all built with surplus equipment from Los Alamos and Oak Ridge, which lends a very authentic feel to them. I thought, going into researching this, that they filmed on the set of some lab. But no, this is all surplus. That is a, a built set. I've had the fortune of going into some of the rooms that looked like this, but smaller, while I was at university. And I think that I can draw a direct line from this movie to that feeling, that appreciation that I had as I'm walking around and over coolant pipes and trying not to knock down over the control systems for various machines. It really does feel like it's a lab. And, you know, to be fair, I have zero actual experience to even begin to nitpick. I just, I really like the blinking lights and the laser boxes. And that's it. That's, that's the tweet, right? Sets. Amazing. Bunch of industrial shit that no one can question. I love it. Billy Williams was the cinematographer on this one, and there isn't a whole lot out there about him. Williams worked a lot, but I'm actually not familiar, right, with any of his work past Gandhi and The Exorcist, you know, which is cool. This movie, I think, looks pretty good. The Blu-ray scan was not bad, so that definitely helps. But it's got color to it without being garish. Everything is presented kind of even. There aren't any big chances taken here from what I remember. But the image is clear and readable at all points in time. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Achieving that is something to aspire to. The art of capturing this movie, I think, is, is getting it seen by everyone. I get the vibe that this was definitely supposed to be a, a four-quadrant movie. That would get the population thinking. But in 1986, I think the average moviegoer had a different idea. And on that par particular opening weekend, it was all Broderick and Dangerfield. But this was all handled real well. Nothing comes to mind as, as being odd or off-putting. Hey, but I'm sure somebody in the comments will, will point it out. 
And I say comments like this is a YouTube video. It's not a YouTube video, but like, subscribe, and hit the bell for more. But no, go ahead and leave a review wherever you find podcasts, wherever you can review a podcast. I don't know. Leave a review. It helps. Anyway, I'd say that that fortune did not smile upon this movie, and it wasn't for lack of effort. Lithgow and, and Nixon, you know, really bring their, their game to the screen. And the story is definitely, it's teen cool with a deeper theme or thesis kind of in the undercurrent slash on the surface towards the end. And as a teen, I don't know that I would have wanted to build an atomic bomb. I, don't, I wouldn't have. But I would very much have wanted to be in the presence of these cool machines and pipes and lasers and shit. You know, it's actually pretty, it's, it's actually pretty tight thematically the way that uh, Matthewson and uh, Paul Stevens uh, mirror each other, so to speak, and how they connect and how they are the establishment and, you know, kind of the upstart or the rebellion or the population or, or whatever the case is. That entire mutually assured destruction thread is foreshadowed already at the beginning when Paul is at Jenny's house first time and they are watching the earth stood still which I also have and need to do for this podcast. And that that thread goes all the way through. And the movie looks good. It sounds good. Yeah, it just had bad luck coming up against Ferris Bueller and, and back to school. I mean, they had so much in ticket sales. You know, and I think I'm going to step out of line here and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out of pocket, so to speak. And I'm going to say that, that Marshall Brickman is a, is a naturally funny person. And this screenplay, while it does hit on themes, it lacks... It lacks the charm that Brickman himself has in spades, which that might have come through more in his collaboration with Woody Allen in those relatively slice of life, quote, yak and track New Yorker pictures. I will say that in our particularly 80s moment of, of film, which with time has become all the more sweet, one of the kids rescuing Paul and Jenny from the actual military really drops some wisdom and they are other science fair attendees they're hot abject nerds and they uh they start out jealous but end up zealous kind of like they're like oh this guy's awesome they rock you know jenny asks jenny asks them or him one of them specifically she's like why are you helping us and and he replies and this is this is so perfect and i think that this is extremely marshall brickman having Listen to Marshall Brickman in that in that interview. He says, "Life, my dear, is more than just freezing toads." And uh, hey, thanks for hanging out with me. That's it. That's it. Hey, Mark D, IT guy, dad, bad podcaster who doesn't even know how to open up his own thing. And my voice is just trash right now. I don't know what's up, but I have my wisdom teeth out, so it could be anything from medicine to who knows what. But yeah, I'm gonna forego. I think a lot of the the flowery outro stuff, and I'm just going to leave you with three words. Klatu barada nikto. And I forgot to hit record on Zoom, so I hope this is good. <laughs>